<clears throat> and we are going to open our Bibles again to Second Kings chapter 2. In the Church Bible, that's page 367, or in the Larger Print Bibles, 566. Second Kings, and we'll read the whole of chapter 2. <clears throat> when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here. The Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. The company of the prophets at Bethel came out to Elisha and asked, Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, Elisha replied, so be quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, Elisha. The Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he replied, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went to Jericho. The company of the prophets of Jericho went up to Elisha and asked him, Do you not know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, he replied, so be quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here. The Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he replied, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So the two of them walked on. Fifty men from the company of the prophets went and stood at a distance, facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up, and struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and to the left, and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me, what can I do for you before I am taken from you? Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. You have asked a difficult thing, Elijah said, yet if you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise, it will not. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. Then he took hold of his garment and tore it in two. Elisha then picked up Elijah's cloak that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. He took the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and struck the water with it. Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah, he asked. When he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left, and he crossed over. The company of the prophets from Jericho who were watching said, The spirit of Elijah is resting on Elisha. And they went to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. 
Look, they said, we your servants have fifty able men. Let them go and look for your master. Perhaps the Spirit of the Lord has picked him up and set him down in some mountain or in some valley. No, Elisha replied, do not send them. But they persisted until he was too embarrassed to refuse. So he said, send them. And they sent fifty men who searched for three days but did not find him. When they returned to Elisha, who was staying in Jericho, he said to them, Didn't I tell you not to go? The people of the city said to Elisha, Look, our Lord, this town is well situated, as you can see, but the water is bad and the land is unproductive. Bring me a new bowl, he said, and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went out to the spring and threw the salt into it, saying, This is what the Lord says. I have healed this water. Never again will it cause death or make the land unproductive. And the water has remained pure to this day, according to the word Elisha had spoken. From there, Elisha went up to Bethel. As he was walking along the road, some boys came out of the town and jeered at him. Get out of here, Baldy, they said. Get out of here, Baldy. He turned around looked at them and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. And he went on to Mount Carmel and from there returned to Samaria. This is God's word. Can God really handle the future? Is he really going to see his plans through to the very end? Given the challenges we face in our time and our place, is God able to finish what he started? Or has he miscalculated? Are we as people going to end up high and dry? Those are questions I would guess many of us have asked ourselves at certain points. And those are the questions that lie behind our passage this morning. The opening verse gets right to the point. We're joining Elijah and Elisha on the day the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind. Since he first appeared in 1 Kings 17, Elijah has been a giant figure. He has confronted kings and false prophets. He has brought drought on the land, and he has brought an end to drought. On a number of occasions, he called down fire from heaven. At the beginning, he seemed to stand alone in Israel. Now, he might not have been the only believer in the Lord, but he was the only one willing to stand up and be counted. Elijah has been a colossus for the cause of God and for God's faithful people. And now, just like that, we're told the Lord's taken him away. Now, we do know God has plans in place. Back in 1 Kings 19, He told Elijah to anoint Elisha as his successor. And that has happened. But since then, we've heard nothing about Elisha. 
We haven't seen him in action. We really don't know if he's big enough to fill Elijah's shoes. And in fact, on the day he's about to leave, Elijah seems to be offering Elisha a way out of trying to fill his shoes. As they're traveling from a place called Gilgal, verse 2 tells us, Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here. The Lord has sent me to Bethel. Staying at Gilgal would be a way of quietly resigning from the role of successor. But Elisha says, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. In other words, I know what you're saying, but I'm going to stick with this. So in verse 3, they arrive with a company of the prophets at Bethel. Apparently, Elijah's courage has drawn others to the cause. The prophets of the Lord are not hiding in caves anymore. They're out in the open. But they're not very encouraging towards Elisha. They say to him, Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? That sounds a bit like, Aren't you going to be up the creek when he goes? How are you going to take the place of such a great man? It seems that Elijah feels the same way they do. He tells them to be quiet. So already in these opening verses, we have an atmosphere of unease and uncertainty, maybe even dread. What is going to happen when Elijah goes? He's had some great victories against idolatry. But the war is not over yet. It's a long way from being over. What are we going to do when this mighty warrior isn't here anymore? Well, in the next verses, what we've just seen on the road from Gilgal to Bethel is repeated two more times. Between Bethel and Jericho, and between Jericho and the Jordan River. Two more times, Elijah offers Elijah Elisha a way out. And Elisha insists he's going to keep going. Finally, they get to the Jordan River, and Elijah hits the water with his cloak. The waters part. The two men cross over. And when that happens, Elijah is no longer offering Elisha a way out. He says to him in the middle of verse 9, Tell me, what can I do for you before I am taken from you? Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. You've asked a difficult thing, Elijah said. Yet, if you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours, otherwise it will not. What is this about? Well, Elisha is not asking for twice the spiritual power that Elijah had. He's asking for twice the portion the other prophets have. In the Old Testament law, the firstborn son received a double share of the father's wealth when it was divided up. Firstborn got a double portion and the rest was divided between the other children. And the reason the firstborn inherited a double share was because he was taking on responsibility for the family. That is similar to what's going on here. Elisha knows already he's not going to be just another prophet in Israel. He's going to be the prophet in Israel. 
the Lord's primary representative in the battle against idolatry. So he's asking for spiritual power equal to that task. Don't send me into this, please, with just an ordinary portion of the Spirit. Give me double the ordinary. And Elijah says, if you see me go, then it will be yours. Verse 11. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. Then he took hold of his garment and tore it in two. Elisha's words sum up perfectly what has just happened. When he says, my father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel, he's not pointing out to Elijah what's going on. He's using those words to describe Elijah. Elijah is the spiritual father of Elisha and the other prophets. He has led them. He's been their example. He's given them courage. Elijah is their father and he is the chariots and horsemen of Israel. He has been the true strength of Israel. Forget the kings and their battle equipment. Elijah has been God's one-man army to defend the good and defeat the bad. But now, the Lord's one-man army is taken away. And for all Elisha's determination to obey God's call and step into Elijah's shoes, you can sense the distress he's feeling. The anxiety as he cries out and then tears his clothes. And it's not just Elisha who feels this way. Back in verse 7, we were told 50 of the prophets have been standing at a distance during this, watching it all. They're feeling the same trepidation. What now? What do we do when God's one-man army isn't with us anymore? Can God finish what he started? Or has he miscalculated? Are we as people going to end up high and dry? And before we go on with this, it's important to realize this moment of uncertainty and apprehension is not a new thing for God's people. If we go back about 550 years before this event, something very similar happened. At that time, the Lord had a one-man army whose name was Moses. In God's power, Moses confronted Pharaoh. He overcame Pharaoh. He led the Israelites out of their slavery in Egypt right up to the edge of the Red Sea. Then Moses raised his staff. The waters parted. And the Israelites crossed over on dry ground. I don't think it's any accident at all that here in our passage, the waters part in front of Elijah. And verse 8 says, He and Elisha crossed over on dry ground. Here in 2 Kings, God's people are in the midst of a battle and they're losing a great leader who they've depended on. 
But they're also being reminded, this has happened before. After Moses led God's people out of Egypt, he met God on Mount Sinai. He led the people through the wilderness until they stood right on the edge of the promised land. A place full of powerful enemies and fortified cities. And then Moses died. The Lord's one-man army was taken away. That was 550 years before Elijah. Then if we fast forward about 850 years after Elijah, we find another example of this. At that time, the Israelites had returned from exile in Babylon. They were a pale shadow of what they used to be. They were ruled by the Romans, and they were longing for a leader. Into that situation, a man came called John the Baptist. He looked a lot like Elijah, hairy with a leather belt. And he had the same kind of charisma as Elijah. We read earlier when John started preaching, the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to hear him. There was no doubt God was doing something through John. Israel had waited so long for this. And here it is. A new one-man army. The chariots and horsemen of Israel. Calling people to turn from their sin and come back to God. But then King Herod had John arrested and beheaded. And that was the end of that. Now who would turn people back to God? What does all of this tell us? It tells us God has a habit. He has a track record of this kind of thing. Moses, Elijah, John, all of them taken away at crucial moments in the battle. And in each case, God's people were asking the same questions that we sometimes ask today. Can God finish what he started? Can we as people be sure we're not going to end up high and dry? But each time God answered those questions by showing the Lord's power is still present. His work still continues. Here in Kings, Elijah is gone now. But look at verse 13. Then Elisha picked up Elijah's cloak that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. He took the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and struck the water with it. Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah, he asked. When he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left, and he crossed over. The company of the prophets from Jericho who were watching said, The spirit of Elijah is resting on Elisha. And they went to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. Elijah is gone, but the Lord is still here. His power is still here. His work still goes on. Elisha is retracing the steps Elijah had made earlier in the chapter, crossing back over the Jordan 
And in a moment we'll see him back in Jericho. God's work will go on through Elisha. The name Elisha means God saves. God has supplied a new one-man army. Now Elisha is the chariots and horsemen of Israel. Later on when Elisha dies, that is what he'll be called, just like Elijah had been. Now that doesn't mean the company of prophets is quick to adjust to this new situation. They see God's power at work through Elisha as the waters part in front of him, but still they insist on scouring the countryside for three days, looking for Elijah. They're not quite ready to believe God's power could still be there without Elijah. But of course they don't find him. And they soon see that though the man of God is different, the same God is still at work. His power is not diminished one bit. The last two incidents in chapter 2 show us that. They show us his power at work through Elisha. And God's power through Elisha brings what it always brings, both salvation and judgment. First, in verses 19 to 22, God's power brings salvation. The people of Jericho approach Elisha about a problem in the city's water supply. It's a very serious problem. In verse 19, the word translated unproductive is literally miscarriages. So the translation should probably be the water is bad and the land suffers from miscarriages. Some sort of pollution in the water is causing this in humans and in the livestock. The water is bringing death. Now we've seen before Old Testament prophets often use dramatic actions to accompany their message. And here when Elisha throws salt in the well, it's not a magic ritual that he's performing. It's a symbol of the purifying power of God. From now on, the water brings life instead of death. That incident in Jericho shows that God's power brings salvation. But the next verses show that God's power may also bring judgment. Elisha moves on to Bethel. And Bethel has a very particular significance at this time. It is one of the main centers of idol worship in Israel. One of King Jeroboam's golden calves was at Bethel. We read about those back in 1 Kings. And having a golden calf meant big business for the town. Lots of visitors come in to worship the calf and spend their money in Bethel. And that helps us understand this strange incident. Notice in verse 23, Elisha doesn't go into the town. But the people seem to be afraid that he might try to come in and mess up their idol business. So they come out of the town to fire their contempt and abuse at the Lord's servant. There's some debate among commentators as to how old these people actually are. The NIV calls them boys, 
Others think it should be translated young man. And the difference of opinion comes because the Hebrew word can refer to males from the age of 12 right up to the age of 30, depending on the context. So I don't think we can be sure how old they are. But what is clear is that they're old enough to recognize the Lord's prophet and show their hostility to him. Baldy, they call him. Maybe Elisha really was bald. Or maybe he's shaved his head as a sign of mourning for Elijah. Or maybe prophets normally shave their heads the way monks used to do. Whatever the reason for this baldness, though, these boys or young men know who they're shouting at. They're determined to get rid of Elisha so he won't disturb their idolatry. They tell him to get out of here. They have no hesitation in mocking him, which is the same as mocking the God Elisha serves and telling him to get out of here. When people show contempt for God's representative, it is contempt for God himself. So at Elisha's word, two bears come out of the woods and maul 42 of this mob. That would suggest there were more than 42 of them in the mob. Last week we saw Elijah calling down fire on some soldiers. And we said then, that was not a prophet overreacting. It was Almighty God showing his power and authority. And here with the bears, one writer says, this is not an irritable prophet. It is a judging God. In Jericho, we saw God send his power to bring salvation. In fact, we noticed the name Elisha means God saves. But here in Bethel we see when God's salvation is rejected, then his power will bring judgment. And that is the case with every Savior God sends. A few moments ago, we looked back to another moment in history where God's people lost a great leader. Long before Elijah's day, Moses led the Israelites to the very edge of the promised land, and then he died. But God continued his work through Joshua, a man whose name means the Lord saves. It was Joshua who led the people into the promised land. And God's power worked through Joshua to bring both salvation and judgment. It brought salvation to those who worshipped God and asked for mercy. People like Rahab the prostitute. But through Joshua, God's power brought judgment on those who rejected God and his people. When God took Moses away and the situation looked dire, he sent a man whose name means the Lord saves. When God took Elijah away, he sent a man whose name means God saves. And much later, when God took John the Baptist away, he sent Jesus, whose name also means the Lord saves. 
at every one of those crucial moments, God showed that his power was still present. His work was still continuing. He is the God who saves. And Jesus was a savior like no other. He taught with an authority people had never heard before. He demonstrated divine power over nature, disease, and demons. He was God's ultimate one-man army. So much so that his disciples recognized him finally as God's Messiah. Not just another prophet or teacher, but God's eternal king. And as God's Messiah, Jesus demonstrated power over death. He was crucified, dead, and buried, as we said earlier. But then he rose again on the third day. So the New Testament assures us Jesus doesn't just bring temporary salvation like those other saviors did. Jesus brings eternal salvation from Satan, sin, and all the powers of evil. He is the one-man army who defeated death and hell. And so he offers us indestructible life. But Jesus also said, whoever is not with me is against me. Jesus brings God's salvation. And that means whoever is not with Jesus will face God's eternal judgment. And that will be a whole lot worse than getting mauled by a bear. We've seen how this passage in Kings then is part of a pattern in the Bible. A pattern of God continuing to work in power even when he takes away his great men. His chariots and horsemen like Moses, Elijah and John the Baptist. But according to the New Testament there is one more twist in this. Because the ultimate saviour has been taken away. No sooner had Jesus shown his power over death and over the grave, no sooner had he risen from the dead and been reunited with his disciples, than what happened? He was taken from them and returned back into heaven. He went away just as the disciples faced the biggest challenge of their lives. Jesus had commissioned them to be his witnesses. Not just in Jerusalem, but right to the ends of the earth, he said. If Moses was a loss, and Elijah and John the Baptist, those losses were nothing compared to the loss of Jesus. Surely the loss of Jesus is a devastating loss. If he's the only Savior able to bring eternal salvation... Where does that leave us today now that he's gone? What does it mean for God's work in this world? Well, the answer is the God who sent Joshua and Elisha and Jesus has not abandoned us today. The New Testament tells us Jesus did not return to heaven in order to get rid of us. 
He returned to heaven to reign for us. Ephesians tells us God the Father has seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. Today, Jesus Christ is seated in the highest place, reigning from the highest place for his people's good. And who are his chariots and horsemen today? Well, the New Testament says our king is not served today by a one-man army anymore. The church is his army. It's through the church that God's work continues today. And God supplies his church with all the power we need. Before Jesus returned to heaven, he said this to his disciples. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Breathing on them was a way of showing what would happen after he returned to heaven. God's Holy Spirit would come on them. They would be given the power they need to be his witnesses. That event is described in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2. It was a unique event. It was a once-for-all pouring out of God's Spirit on God's people. And what it means is that today, everyone who puts their trust in Jesus receives not just God's forgiveness, but God's actual presence in their lives. The Holy Spirit is God's power for obeying and serving him. The Spirit supplies the church with power equal to the task. But notice what else Jesus says here, and it's the more shocking of the two things that he says. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. What does he mean? He means that God works through his people to bring both salvation and judgment. Now that doesn't mean we try to call down fire from heaven or bars from the woods. We are not in the same position as the Old Testament prophets. And neither does this statement from Jesus mean that we go around picking and choosing who gets God's forgiveness. As God's servants, we have no authority of our own. Ultimately, only God can forgive or condemn. But he has sent us to be his messengers in this world. In another place, the New Testament says, it is as though God were making his appeal 
through us. As individuals and as a church, God has given us authority to say to men and women, if you own up to your sin and trust in Jesus and his work, if you trust that his death was in your place, then your sins are forgiven. God's salvation is yours. But God has also given his church authority to say, if you reject Jesus and his work, whether you do that loudly or quietly in your heart, then your sins are not forgiven. You will receive God's judgment. Delivering that message is not arrogance on the part of the church. It's not presumption. It's doing what God has commissioned us to do. It is God making his appeal through us. So if we wonder what is God's plan for the salvation of the world? The answer is, it's us. Jesus has done what was necessary for salvation. He has achieved all that needed to be achieved. And now he has sent us and given us his Holy Spirit. As individuals and as a church, our calling is to speak about the risen Savior and live lives that show his life-changing power. The worldwide church of Jesus Christ is the chariots and horsemen of the living God. Through the church, God will see his plans through to the very end. Through the church, God will finish what he started in this world. We have a very high calling. And we have been given all the power we need to fulfill that calling. Not on our own, but as part of a worldwide church of Jesus Christ. So we have opportunity now to recommit ourselves as a fellowship and individually to this high calling that we've been given. We have this treasure from the Lord our God.